Chief, how are you today? The special agent in charge. I'm fine. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. How are you? You know, I, can I be a chief too? <laughs> Look, That's... I, I was only a chief at work at home. I'm, I oh. don't know. I'm like third string. I, so just so you know. I, I think I might've mentioned this to you, but I was, I had a little retirement function and a party a couple of weeks ago. And one of the, one of my friends who showed up, he retired, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. And we asked him, my wife and I asked him and his wife about getting to getting together for dinner prior to the event. And he said, Hey man, I haven't made a decision in 10 years. Let me just pass the phone to my wife. And isn't that the truth? Isn't that oh, the truth? It's for those of you married out there, fellas, y'all know what Bill said is true. It's so funny. I, we, everything happens in the house and we have somebody over here doing some repairs or some new curtains, whatever. Hey, Mark, what do you think about this? I look at him like, are you crazy? She's right there. She'll tell you what I've decided. Just right. leave me alone. It'll right. save everybody time and heartache. So right. I get it. But so, hey, listen, but you were the boss in the LA field office for true, the right. DEA. So, so, so. so yeah, maybe once in a while, call me the chief, play to my ego. Hey, Mark, I saw an article the other day, maybe a couple of weeks ago. I've, I've just been sitting on it. And it had a couple of terms in it that, Maybe, I don't know, maybe they trigger me, right? Maybe I'm a homer. I worked for DEA for 30 plus years. So anytime there's an article that talks about the quote, war on drugs or harm reduction or law enforcement's role, it's possible I do take it a little personal. The listeners and viewers, you're going to have to watch and listen and make your decision. What I think is I bring a little common sense to the argument based on my years of experience, what I saw, what works and what doesn't work. So the article that I saw was written by a gentleman named Matthew Lassiter. He is a professor at the University of Michigan, and he's written a bunch of, I guess his area of expertise is what I would call social studies, you know, 21st century social studies. And I think the piece that I read was either an excerpt from a longer article or story, or maybe it was just something he wrote as a summary. It, it, the, the, I guess what it's based on is something he wrote called Suburban Crisis, White America and the War on Drugs. And the article opens with the statement, for 70 years, politicians in both parties have fought an unwinnable war on drugs. And he says the, the drug war isn't winnable, winnable, and he cites the Global Commission on Drug Policy Report in 2011 and I guess that report said as much. Later in the article, he calls for a drug policy that abandons criminalization and focuses on, quote, true harm reduction. And when I see this kind of rhetoric, Mark, it worries me. And it, like I said, it does kind of trigger me because I worry that people have a serious misunderstanding about what law enforcement's role in this country is. And I guess what I mean by that is when this gentleman says the war, the quote, war on drugs, and we'll talk more about that term later and where it came from. But when he says the war on drugs is unwinnable, what's the measuring stick? You know, what measuring stick is he using to say that it has been a failure? And what else is interesting is he talks about focusing on harm reduction, but he doesn't talk about any of these so-called harm reduction techniques that have been successful. And I guess my question is, Mark, one of my questions is, and I'd like to get your opinion on it at some point today, 
Is it the job of law enforcement to correct an 80-year dysfunctional relationship the American people have with drugs? I think a couple of weeks ago, probably our second show, we talked about crime of the century, the history of the opiate crisis in this country. And in that, we saw back to the early 19th century, a dysfunctional relationship with drugs, right? Opiates going into China, the Chinese government realizing this was devastating their people, the Chinese government practicing supply reduction and law enforcement by taking these shipments of drugs and dumping them in the ocean right when they came off the ships. My question is, how, why does someone try to exclude uh, one certain part of the solution? So let me hit you with this, Mark. Mm -hmm. Three years ago in 1950, the murder rate in the United States was 5.3 per 100,000 citizens. In 2019, it was 6.0 per 100,000 citizens. Currently, there's about 7,7500 homicide detectives in the United States. Have we been fighting a 70-year losing battle in the war on homicides? What if I told you as a homicide detective that you've been a failure because the homicide rate has actually gone up in this country over the past 70 years? Should we decriminalize homicide? and focus on, quote, harm reduction or some other method of reducing murders in this country. A second point, which may hit home a little more with you, or you can expand on it uh, a little more just based on your background and your expertise. In 1950, 22 automobile deaths per 100,000 people in the United States. In 2021, 13 automobile deaths per 100,000 people. So. The biggest drop in that whole time was 1974. I think it went down by 17 or 18 percent that one year. Now, I don't know how good your memory is, Mark. I was only eight years old then. But do you remember or through learning after the fact, obviously, we weren't in the business back then. What was it in 1974 that you could recall that caused such a significant change in highway deaths in the United States? So I remember something that happened, and of course it was the 55 mile an hour speed limit that exactly. was imposed by the federal government, which I, a firm believer and supporter, believer in and supporter of the Constitution, looking back, think was unconstitutional. But that's for a different show. <laughs> but there was the 55 mile an hour national speed limit that was imposed. But there's something very interesting about that, Bill, and the points you've made so far are, are spot on, and I want to further you know, expand on those because they're spot on. I remember going to, ironically, retired California Highway Patrol chief, I remember going to traffic school for a ticket I received in college. And one of the exhibits that the instructor in that class used was a chart about the reduction of traffic-related deaths across the United States. And he actually used that 1974 statistic about this drop. Now, it may have been kind of the steepest drop year over year, that chart. And he showed mm -hmm. us just that, uh, that clip, that snapshot. Then what he did, he pulled away some, I don't know, material or cardboard from the rest of the chart. And what had been happening was even 15 or so years before and then after, like going into the mid-80s, 
was the steep decline in traffic deaths. So I'm not saying that the 55 mile an hour speed limit imposition had nothing to do with traffic related deaths, but it was certainly part of a much larger trend, which was more related to increased technology and braking in mm -hmm. tires in a crash or crunch, you know, research of, of vehicles, things like this. In other words, oh yeah, the safety glass. All of these things have been reducing deaths, automobile-related deaths in the first place. Again, 55 mile hour speed limit may or may not have contributed, but it certainly was part of a larger downward trend. So I definitely do remember that. But having said that and giving that diatribe, you can go ahead and continue, and we'll get back to some of the points you, you were making. No, I think that, uh, that was the point I was making right there. We talked about other harm reduction techniques in the uh, highway safety space. And you touched on some of them. We went from lap belts to shoulder belts. We uh, had crumple zones in cars. We had other supplemental restraint systems. Airbags came out. Vehicle warning systems came out. So there were a lot of different things that happened over that time that contributed to, quote, harm reduction. But all I'm saying is that part of it, and hey, there is some reason why there was that one giant drop in 1974. And many states had dropped their speed limit in anticipation of that law passing the year before. So right around that time, there was also, I guess you could say, just an awareness that speed kills. So what the point I'm making is you do not exclude all other you don't exclude the law enforcement piece or the lawmaking piece just because you have these other harm reduction things happening. Today, the speed limit's gone up. Why is that? Because as a society, we've, we've been able to manage harm a little better with all these supplemental safety systems. So maybe we can change laws at this point, but I don't think, or, or let me ask, let me say it in the form of a question mark, if we took away the speed limit today in the United States, even if you are a uh, strict interpretationalist, if we took away the speed limit, what do you think would happen to highway safety? Well, I'll tell you right now, I think uh, early on there would be, it, it, it really would increase the number of traffic accidents. I mean, I think it's just logical because people are used to driving a certain speed. They've not been trained to drive faster and things like this, but you're absolutely right. If we take away all barriers, so to speak, it's going to have a negative impact on traffic safety generally. Now, by the way, I'm getting a little bit off track here, but I wanna be you know, complete in, in my answers, my responses to this. I think there are circumstances where very high speed limits or, or none are, are relatively safe. I'll give you an example in Germany. There are no speed limits on a large portion of the autobahns. I've driven on them. There's no speed limit. You have people going 100 miles an hour and you have twin turbo Mercedes going 160 miles an hour, literally out there. And the, the mileage death rate is lower than it is here in the United States. Now, I say that for a reason. It may, may sound counterintuitive to think the, the point that you and I are both making here about just reducing all barriers, but there's something very important very important about that fact is the culture in Germany related to driving going way back is driving safely where speed is only one factor in that. 
They are simply better drivers in it. Sorry. And the laws applying to driver's licenses and to violations of the law related to driving are immense. So just like there are no speed zones in a large portion of the German autobahns, there are other places where the speed limit is enforced to the mile per hour. And if you violate certain laws, you lose your driver's license either for a long time or permanently. There is no gray area with, with it when it is here. But this does relate to law enforcement and the culture of drug mm -hmm. use. And I want to get into that here in the United States. There is a relation to not only what's available to you, but what you see as a responsibility to yourself, your own behavior. And I want to talk about that when the time comes up. Yeah, so so that's that's a great tie in there when you talk about the culture. Is it law enforcement's responsibility to change that? Is it law enforcement's responsibility to change culture? Have we burdened law enforcement too much? When I brought up the example of homicide detectives and I said the murder rate's gone up in the past 70 years, are our homicide detectives failures? Have we fought a losing battle? in the war on homicide. And I say that honestly, because how much impact the, do those homicide detectives have on the culture of violent crime in this country and the culture of murder or why murders are occurring? And I would say, in my opinion, none, really none. And I would say the same holds true in the drug space. Are we putting the burden on law enforcement or are, are we tasking law enforcement? Is our expectation or is our benchmark that law enforcement is actually going to change the drug culture in this country or is the benchmark what, in my opinion, it should be just as it should be for homicide detectives or uh, California Highway Patrol officers? Should the benchmark really be reduction of harm? rather than uh, a change of culture. There's so much to unpack here. And I, uh, but let me say this. Yeah. Is that like with many um, problems, circumstances, the answer, the solution is not a, a it's not a one button solution. There can be multiple factors in, in addressing the issue and solving the problem. And the, the drug problem in this country, to me, it's a multifaceted solution. And the word solution does not mean that we're going to ever end drug use or drug trafficking in this country. I think anybody that says that we can do that, they're ignorant or they're foolish or both. Just as you so well articulated earlier about murders and other crimes, for me, driving under the influence. I mean, we have task forces. It's all they do is to go out and look for the impaired driver. Are we ever going to fully eliminate the knucklehead having six beers and get behind the wheel of his or her car? No, but the point is we don't quit. So having said that, I just want to touch on this. This goes to the culture. You talked about, you know, what responsibility and does law enforcement have an obligation to change culture, or just enforce law. And it just, it, you talk about triggering me in that first line you read about uh, politicians, both parties, have fought an unwinnable war on drugs. Uh, in the latest chapter, the Biden administration has labeled Mexican cartels the top criminal threat facing the U.S. 
I talk about leadership all the time on, on my podcast. We talk about it here together, Bill. Mm-hmm. I want people to remember, I want people to know if you don't remember, that Joe Biden also said early in, in his presidency and, and when he was on the campaign trail that the biggest threat facing America right now is white supremacy. Those of you listening, do you remember that? I do. I'm sure, Bill, you remember that. Mm-hmm. The point is that if you can't even make up your mind what the most important issue is as far as national security or internal security, as the leader of the government in this country, we're in for a world of hurt. So having said that, and I wish you would make up his mind, having said that, we have to realize that law enforcement is here for a reason. It's because crime, no matter what crime looks like, no matter what form it comes in, crime has been a part of the human experience since the dawn of the human race. It's not going away. We have to keep fighting no matter what. The question is, what are the best strategies? How do we make sure that law enforcement is doing things objectively? And how do we make sure law enforcement is doing things effectively and efficiently? So, you know, that's where I am on that. It's a multi-pronged attack. Yeah, it's definitely a multi-pronged attack. And what I find interesting, especially in the drug space, is law enforcement ends up, I would say generally there's three three prongs to addressing the drug issue in this country. Um, one is education and awareness, building education and awareness around what the threats are, what drugs are out there, what they look like, what they do to the body, why they're dangerous. The second is drug treatment. Right now in this country, and, and first, to talk about education and awareness, Mark, law enforcement right now is probably doing more in that space than anyone else. Right. And why is that? It's because no one is stepped up. Where is our Department of Education? There is no standardized curriculum in the United States to educate teenagers on drug issues and on the dangers of drugs. When law enforcement tries to get into schools because there are not programs in schools, when they try to bring this information to schools, one of the things that I heard personally was, We don't want to do that program in the schools because we don't want the parents to think there's a drug problem in the school. And the reality is there's drugs are in every school right now and drugs are available to every child with social media platforms, et cetera. And that's a whole, a whole other issue, but we need to really understand that it takes all three work in all three areas. An insurance company, an insurance company right now, Mark, they will pay for, I don't know, somewhere between 17 days and 30 days of inpatient treatment for someone suffering from substance use disorder, opiate use disorder. Why do I bring that up? Because every single treatment professional I talk to, and and I keep in regular contact with two who run treatment facilities, they tell me that is nowhere near enough time to even detox, really, to even get the brain uh, back functioning properly when one is addicted to powerful synthetic drugs like methamphetamine or fentanyl. That is a huge issue. So what is this administration doing to require insurance companies to step up and actually treat people to where they have a fighting chance of success? If I told you, Mark, that children that I see, teenagers, 
that I see successfully making it through a recovery program, guess where they went uh, through recovery? Guess where, guess where the program was that they went through? Mexico. Mexico. Really? How crazy is that? And do you know why? Because it's not insurance-based. The cost is much cheaper, right? So families can afford it. They'll send their kids to this Mexi- to Mexico to an inpatient facility where they can afford six months of treatment, which is what people tell me it really takes. And the other part of it is they can't leave. They can't leave. In the state of California, if you're 15 years old, if you're 14 years old and you're in a treatment facility, you can decide anytime you want just to walk out the door, right? Mm-hmm. So right. as much as we talk, not as we, as much as the author of this article talks about uh, successful, you know, scientifically based harm reduction strategies. Tell me what they are, and because I've seen some things work, but the they are not as successful as people would lead you to believe. And there needs to be more done in the treatment space, more done in the education space, and more done in the law enforcement space. And just to give you, Mark, you probably heard me tell these stories before, talking about law enforcement addressing the drug problem where it causes the harm. Two examples. You can look at CDC data and you can see with your eyes that as the supply of a drug is reduced, the harm caused by that drug is reduced. CDC tracks drug prescriptions in this country and they track deaths caused by drugs. It's there for everyone to see. Supply reduction is harm reduction. Who does supply reduction, Mark? Law enforcement does supply reduction. In fact, I would argue that it is the most effective and the most scientifically based type of harm reduction is supply reduction. Now, you get to the part about incarcerating people, and especially in California, hey, God bless you, you're you're not here anymore, but you know that in California there is a... um, lack of will to incarcerate people for drug crimes. People feel that drug crimes are victimless crimes. It's a, drug trafficking is a victimless crime. We should not be incarcerating people for that. L- let me give you a real-life example and tell me what you think happens in this case. This is a real case, and the only reason I used to talk about this one when I worked for DEA, I used to bring this one up just because the person pled guilty relatively quick so by speaking of it, I wasn't going to affect any trial or anything like that. But there are a bunch, trust me, there are a bunch of examples just like this. Overdose clusters, a city that you know well, Pasadena, California. You may remember this. I think you were still here, September 2020. In one weekend, one drug dealer sold drugs to seven people who overdosed. Three of those people died. Okay? Now. I remember, I remember it well. Yeah. So. Pasadena Police Department, outstanding police department, partnered with DEA, within 48 hours had identified the dealer, okay? Mm -hmm. Freeze it right there. We don't want to incarcerate people. We don't want to criminalize drug trafficking, Mark. What happens the next weekend if we freeze right there and don't arrest that person? They're back. They're right back in the same business. Yeah, and and who dies? The quote-unquote innocent, and they are innocent to some degree. There's no doubt about it. But these are going to be young kids that are dying. Mark, here's what I always say about that. They made a choice to take drugs. That's right. Right? Hey, I have my own opinions about that. 
and everyone is welcome to their own opinion. They did not make a choice to die. And in this case, in cases like this one, they were deceived. They were sold a drug that they did not seek out. In this case in Pasadena, it was cocaine mixed with fentanyl. The people thought they were getting just cocaine. So really, they were dead. The ones that died, dead probably almost instantly. It's a miracle that four others survived. But the point is, if law enforcement doesn't intervene, you and I know, and it's our obligation to let the public know that the cycle continues. This is a greed-driven crime. They don't just wake up one morning and say, oh, a couple people died. I'm going to stop selling drugs now. I'm going to go out and get a real job. That doesn't happen. In another case, we had collected thousands and thousands of text messages from this drug dealer. People complained to this drug dealer that they had been, they said, hey, I think you sold us fentanyl. We got sick. We had to go to the hospital. And she said, oh, my God, thanks for telling me. Guess what she was doing that day? <laughs> selling more drugs. So th the public has to understand that this cycle continues absent law enforcement intervention and that there are victims of this crime. Although people made the choice to use drugs, they did not make the choice to die. So that's on the, that's on the retail end of the drug trafficking space. Harm reduction by really, hey, are you impacting the supply of drugs when you take a dealer off the street in Pasadena? that's selling drugs to seven people in a weekend or whatever. No, the reality is you're not really impacting the supply. But Mark, that person is a danger to the community. They're basically an imminent danger to the community. If they had shot seven people and three of them have died in a weekend, it would be all hands on deck national news to get that person off the street. So harm reduction is arresting that person and and making the public safer, getting them out of circulation. The other part of harm reduction, and I talked about it a minute ago, is supply reduction. We In California, we share a border with Mexico. The amount of fentanyl coming across the border is staggering. It's not uncommon or unheard of for law enforcement to seize a million doses at a time in the greater LA area. Now, before I left DEA a couple months ago, DEA had said that seven out of 10 pills contained two milligrams or more of fentanyl. That's an amount that could potentially kill. I don't know who came up with that two milligram statistic mark. Is it accurate or not? You know, I, I would personally say from what I've seen, it might be closer to three milligrams. But hey, if you're a 15 year old that weighs 100 pounds and you have no opiate tolerance, two milligrams is definitely enough to kill you. So we seize a million doses, or not we, law enforcement in general seizes a million doses of fentanyl, takes them off the street. Seven out of 10 have a dangerous amount of fentanyl in them. That's harm reduction. You've taken 700,000 doses of a potentially deadly drug off the street. That's probably more significant harm reduction that comes from any other single thing. So when I see someone asking, when I see someone advocating for taking tools that are in this fight and removing them, I question that. I question the sanity of that. I think naloxone's great. I carry naloxone. I have it in my pocket right now. It's not a, it's not a miracle drug, right? I've seen, it's not uncommon now. Uh, let me put it this way. In California, when naloxone is administered, 
the average administration is more than one dose. I only carry one dose. So my hope with naloxone is just to keep someone alive until medical professionals can get there. The other issue with naloxone I've seen is, hey, you revive someone, right? Someone's having an active overdose. You revive them with naloxone. They come to, guess what, Mark? They're not happy. They're not happy. They're agitated. They refuse treatment at the hospital. And they're able to just walk away. They're fine. And what's the first thing they do when they walk away? They use again. Right. Because you just instantly blew their high. Instantly, you turned their high off. So they use again. Now, that naloxone is still in their system. So what happens? The, the fentanyl or the opiate drug doesn't affect them. So what do they right. do? They take or, a little more. Still doesn't affect them. They take a little more. They start to feel the effects. And then as that naloxone wears off, they go into an overdose state again. So naloxone is tremendous. I advocate for it. It should be in schools. It should be everywhere. It's not a miracle drug. It's something you administer after someone overdoses. And hopefully we can find ways to stop people from overdosing in the first place. The point of me saying all this, Mark, is... I, it troubles me that someone advocates for removing a significant part of harm reduction in favor of these other, quote, harm reduction techniques, which Mr. Lassiter doesn't even mention what they are in this right. article. And there are viable techniques out there. All of them have a place where I believe in them. But don't sell law enforcement short because right now, in my opinion, being on I was on the front line of the fentanyl crisis in this country, law enforcement is the most significant harm reduction thing I see going on right now. Of course, you're right. Of course, you're right. And, you know, this article gets into quite a bit. I've got it right here in my little hands. And I read it three times last night. And this goes into the entire decriminalization, not just of drugs, but of many violations of the law, this whole decriminalization mindset. I've always been opposed to decriminalizing drugs because I look at decriminalizing drugs as advocating for drugs. People can disagree with me. They can say, no, that's not what it means. I believe that it endorses drug use when you decriminalize when you destigmatize any behavior, you're going to get more of it. I am for a culture that stigmatizes drug use. I'm for that because there is no good that comes out of illicit drug use. Zero. Now, an individual who's either addicted to drug use or they're, they are just routine users of marijuana, things like that, they get the high, they have fun, feels good and they think that's a good thing, so be it. But nothing good for society comes out of really in endorsement kind of through turning a blind eye or decriminalizing drug use. Nothing good comes out of it. Now, with that said, there's this gets into it, and Bill, I don't know how far you want to get in this article, but there is a thread here, and when I say a thread, there's a theme through this article that, says that the enforcement, one of the reasons that we need to back law enforcement, the enforcement, of course, is it's racially biased. Yes, I saw that. And we and just talked about that, Mark. We just talked about that. We did just talk about it. And this has some different aspects to it. 
but I, I want to read a little piece about this because the reason this is so important to me, and it should be to everybody, regardless of one's race or political affiliation, it should be important to everybody that we want to use this phrase, a harm reduction that you've touched on so well. We want as much harm reduction for every person in this country, especially our young people, regardless of their skin color. Don't we? Of course we do. So the question is, when you talk about racial disparities, uh, disparities, quote unquote, racial disparity, uh, disparities in law enforcement, things like that, what does it actually mean? Is it real? Um, it, it, is this institutionalized? What are the roots of it and things like this? But let me read this real quick from this article. The bipartisan consensus has two racialized foundations. Po politicians have long competed to punish drug traffickers whom they typically portray as foreigners and racial minorities. Now, to me, this is supposed to be a factual article. This is an opinion by this author that politicians have long competed to punish drug traffickers whom they typically portray as foreigners and racial minorities. Now, where I grew up in Southeast Los Angeles in the 1960s and 17s, yeah, you're damn right. All of the drug pushers, suppliers, and by the way, users, they were all black because I lived in a black neighborhood. I mean, that's all I knew. So when I was growing up, I mean, yeah, every drug pusher I knew or heard of was black because that's the community in which I lived. That was my universe at the time. Now, as we moved out of there and we went to a different neighborhood, a different community, which is about the time back in the mid-1970s, it was about 90% white. A couple of years later, I started high school. And at the time, the high school was about probably 75% or 80% white when I got to high school. And I knew of a lot of drug pushers in that school, my classmates. They were selling pot. They were selling cocaine. I, I didn't know at the time, but I found out later on they were selling heroin. Every single one of them was white. A couple of them were, were my football teammates. They were white guys. That's all I knew at the time. And I'm telling you right now, my perception actually changed. So when I started thinking about drug pushers, drug traffickers, whatever you might want to call them, but drug pushers in this sense on a, a smaller scale, it was white guys. It was white guys. It was white, long-haired hippies that were selling drugs because th that became my universe. When I went into law enforcement in Southern California and I worked, I said, LA County, big county, very diverse. At the time, methamphetamine was the most, I don't know it was the most popular, and you can probably touch on this, but it was certainly a well-known high-profile drug uh, along with cocaine in the 1990s, especially, I think, kind of get into the mid and latter 1990s. And where I worked in a particular part of mid to northern Los Angeles County, there were lots of OMGs, also known as outlaw motorcycle gangs. And what was the drug of choice for them for production and for trafficking? It was methamphetamine, big time. And our undercover guys in the Ohio Patrol and part of task forces, when they were making these major busts, they were making major busts. I'm talking, I was in a one of them. I was a regular patrol cop. But one night they needed some assistance from black and white. And I was part of, in an ancillary way, part of a 
huge bust on a gigantic meth lab in the northern part of Los Angeles County. And it was an OMG that was running this. So now my perception of these guys, these were outlaw motorcycle gang affiliates that were producing and selling trafficking methamphetamine. It was real. Then you get into crack cocaine going back a little bit, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And to summarize, who was selling crack cocaine? It was the black gang members that were pushing crack cocaine in the black community. All of these things can be true at once. And we can get into you know why culturally or geographically, economically, why these things are realities, but they are realities. And so the fact that law enforcement may be targeting a certain group may not be because of skin color. It may be because that particular group is engaged in a certain behavior. And that's just the reality, ladies and gentlemen, that what was going on with those different groups that I articulated there. And when I was in law enforcement, it's still true now. By the way, do we have Canadian cartels that are trafficking drugs in to the United States, there, there might be, I mean, there, maybe there are, I don't know, but we all know it's coming across the Southern border in mass. This is where the predominance of these drugs are coming from. So when people talk about, oh, we're fo focusing on, on Mexicans that are bringing drugs in this country, my answer to them would be yes, because that's where it's coming from. Look, the DEA, the federal government in general, local and county and state law enforcement, they're not going to run to where there's no fire they're going to go to where the crime is does that mean that every single cop is above reproach in every single aspect of his or her professional life or no i'm talking as an institution and as an industry the profession that cops law enforcement agencies they want to fix a problem they want to combat crime and that's what they're doing they're going to where the crime is happening so another aspect I want to touch on this with the, the racial aspect of this article, it talks about over the timeline, Bill, and apologize, I'm getting ahead of you, but there's so much in this article. It's a short article, but it's jam-packed to so many of my opinions, either fallacies or it's incomplete in conclusions and assumptions. It's really incomplete and doesn't dig deep into these assertions the uh, author makes. One of them talks about going back into the 1950s and the 1960s when, the, you know, the first word were the war on drugs, you know, had its genesis with Congress and had its politicians getting together, so forth and so on. And they're talking about white people were afraid of persons of color, criminals, that, you know, uh, of color, black and Mexicans that were pushing drugs onto their white children. And when you see the war on drugs, and they're saying that, that this is the reason that Congress stepped in, this is the reason that Congress started taking action because they were getting pressure from white people to protect their white children. And honestly, I don't know what of any impact that may have had, but here's the thing. This author, in my opinion, makes an argument against his own position. And that is, if it were the white parents that lobby their representatives, if it were. And by the way, I, still, I see no reason that any parent wouldn't lobby to protect their children from a perceived threat. And drug uh, use and drug trafficking is an actual real threat. 
Is he saying that black parents didn't do the same thing? That black parents don't want to protect their children? That black parents, by the way, in black communities with black representatives, that they were too delinquent or too unaware or too unloving in regards to their children, they wouldn't lobby their representatives? Is that what this gentleman's saying here? Is that what his, his opinion of black parents is? Yeah. I certainly hope not, but he has to understand you can't make an argument one way and dismiss it the other. Where were the black parents? Guess what? Guess what? At the same time that this was ramping up, what did we see happening in the black community with the black family, the nuclear black nuclear family at the same time? This is when we started seeing the influx of government funding for black women to have children out of wedlock because they're now they're getting paid with welfare and things like this with when you see all of the welfare, the social programs that were enacted to support black citizens in this country. The timeline, the graphs are absolutely parallel. The more this funding went up into the black community from the federal government, the more the intact nuclear black family was, you had a higher and higher out of wedlock birth rate in the, with the black community. You had fewer and fewer marriages between black men and black women, and you had fewer and fewer black men in the home with the children that they had fathered. And so what happens? He may be right. You did disintegrate. You did disintegrate the ability for a black family to lobby, to enact laws and policies that would protect their children. This all happened at the same time in a parallel fashion. So it's our responsibility to protect our own communities, to work with law enforcement, to lobby our representatives, to actually combat these types of crimes, drug trafficking, and drug use, and to hold ourselves, individuals, and communities accountable and not rely entirely, but it absolutely is an essential part of the fight. Like we said, there are multiple facets of battle here, not to rely entirely on law enforcement. I say all the time, you are your own first responder. You are your own first responder. If you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not taking care of your household, if you're not taking care of your community, you can't expect to some, for someone to be there to clean the mess up after the fact. We have to do those things first. And law enforcement is the next step to, to safeguarding against those things. So there's a lot more to that article, but I wanted to get that out there because I think that this is a big problem. We talked about culture and we talked about the responsibility one has to oneself, you know, not to do these. How do you get that? You, you get it by me telling my son every day. He's only nine years old right now. We're starting right now. Say, if I ever hear, if I ever find out, blah, 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 they'll be held to pay if you engage in not just drugs in this behavior. It's not acceptable in this household. It's not acceptable for me to get a call from your teacher about XYZ behavior. It's not acceptable. That's where this starts. And legalizing this type of behavior is the match into the bucket of gasoline. It, it makes the parent's job harder. I'll say that. It makes the parent's job infinitely harder to legalize and decriminalize. That it does. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. You know, I, Mark, when I hear you talk, I couldn't agree more. And I think that when we look at the synthetic drugs today, methamphetamine, fentanyl, any amount of those drugs right now that are not produced in Mexico are inconsequential to the problems that we're having in this country. Meaning that an overwhelming 95 plus percent, 98 plus percent of the drugs causing harm in this country come from Mexico. Who's creating the drugs in Mexico? There's two crime groups that I'm not making the names up. They're well-known, Sinaloa Cartel, Jalisco New Generation Cartel. What do you think is the nationality of people who make up those groups? Swift? Swiss? Yeah. Ethiopian? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, Japanese? That's, I give up. That's the issue. Like, th this is just like in the 80s. I think you and I talked about it on one of the other podcasts. We, you made some, you gave the example of Italian organized crime, the mafia in the 80s. If you're targeting, if, you're, if you think that in your city or in your area, in your community, Italian or the mafia is causing an issue and you target the mafia, who are you targeting? You're targeting Italian Americans or Italian nationals. That's who is part of that organization. So the drugs are coming from Mexico. The drugs, contrary to what the president of Mexico says, they are 100% manufactured in Mexico. And the only way to address it is to go after those people trafficking the drugs. And the other thing is that people miss a lot is, you know, who do these, the, the people in these organizations, they trust, the trust is very family-based, family relationships are intertwined quite a bit in drug trafficking. And what else is intertwined is relationships from the community where you grew up. People that you knew growing up in specific parts of Mexico, whether it's Culiacan in Sinaloa or, or uh, Guadalajara in Jalisco, the relationships you make with people who, you're, who you trust, that's who you end up generally trafficking drugs with as the criminal enterprise expands. So it's that link to the country of origin that may cause a racial disparity, but again, it's not targeting any particular group other than the group causing the harm. That's really what this enforcement strategy is. It's targeting the organization, organizations plural, causing the harm, and they happen to be based in Mexico, and they happen to be run by Mexican nationals, as evidenced in all the indictments that are out there. 100%. Look, it comes down to this, Bill. It's targeting the behavior. It's targeting the behavior. And law enforcement, I've said it ever since I was in, in law enforcement, maybe a little before, that law enforcement cannot be part of a social experiment. Law enforcement should always be striving to be better in, in any number of capacities and always should be self-policing and, and open to being policed by other entities 100%. But law enforcement's job is to combat criminal behavior regardless. And this is the thing people have to remember. It can be, I was going to say, regardless of, of race, regardless of national origin, regardless of, of national citizenship. Law enforcement has to be that way. 
And what happens is if a particular group, for whatever reason, culturally, geographically, if a particular group engages in a certain general behavior that's illegal, it's going to draw the attention of law enforcement. And it makes it difficult because it can appear that law enforcement Mm -hmm. is targeting an an individual, certainly a group out of racial bias. And again, I, I'm a grown up, I'm 60 years old, been around a long time, felt that I was stopped because I was black and back in the 1970s and eighties and little town I grew up in, you know, in Alhambra outside of Los Angeles and things like this, these things happen. But if we try to completely, in other words, whole equity movement, if we focus on everything outcome in the judicial system, then law enforcement will not be able to enforce the law how it needs to be enforced. In other words, if we're going to make sure that an equal number of this group Mm -hmm. and that group is arrested, and that group is prosecuted, and that group is sent to prison or jail, it's going to miss where the problem or problems are coming from. Law enforcement, the judicial system cannot be, and it's it heavily is now, but cannot be involved in equity. Mm-hmm. Equality, 100%. It has to be involved in equality. That means enforcing the law equally based on someone's behavior. But outcomes, that is a recipe for death of a culture. If we're going to try to ensure the same outcomes for everybody, regardless of the behavior in which they behave, this we cannot do. And again, like I said before, it starts with holding yourself accountable, communities and parents and things like this, and then a society holding people accountable for their behavior. It has to be that way. But we're not going to we're not going to move this war and drugs forward unless we start looking through looking at law enforcement, looking at these strategies, regardless of the appearance. It has to be done regardless of where anyone's from, again, their national origin or what they look like, we have to focus on behavior. And like you said, our problem right now is not coming from Canada. It's coming from our southern border. And that's where we need to focus. And by the way, this gentleman in this article also talked about fantasies of mm. U.S. military, you know, going in and things like this. I'll tell you right now, I am not opposed, obviously, with the right agreements and things like this. Whatever it takes, and again, if we're able to work something out with the Mexican government or our military is addressing these issues south of the border, I'm all for it. Again, not Wild West and not without certain controls and protocols, of course, but until we can get this type of influx, this type of flow of these deadly substances coming across this border, I'm open to any style of ethical and legal and practical law enforcement. Absolutely. Let me tell you a story, Mark. And this goes to what you're saying. And it may be, again, it may be a misunderstanding that this author and a lot of people have about military action. When Trump was president, he sent out one tweet, 
one single tweet that probably did more to help our assets in Mexico than any State Department policy, any State Department negotiations, anything else I saw. And I don't remember exactly what it was, Mark, but it talked about designating Mexican drug cartels, foreign terrorist organizations. When the Mexican government saw that he had said that, they all of a sudden became very willing to help DEA people in Mexico. They became very willing to help the U.S. government. And I think that's what people miss. It's we didn't have to fire a shot. We didn't have to fire a shot. We didn't have to send any uh, U.S. military personnel on foreign soil. The discussion of it as a viable alternative, as something the U.S. government is considering, made a drastic change or caused a drastic change in cooperation with the Mexican government. And the second part of that story, and hey, you know, Mark, I haven't, I don't think I've talked about this on this podcast. Maybe I have. I'm not a registered Republican. I'm also not a registered Democrat. I've been an independent since I first voted. I'm one of the crazy Americans that voted for Obama in 08 and Trump in 16. So don't take political advice from me. But when the, literally the day after the election, when Biden won, the phones went quiet in Mexico. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. you, our people would call someone and they just wouldn't get a call back. You know why? Because they knew they didn't have to call back. They knew they didn't have to assist. That, that option that they were a little bit, I don't want to say afraid of, that they were a little bit concerned with was no longer on the table. So the whole tenor of the relationship changed literally overnight. So when this author talks about, you know, the fantasy of invading Mexico or whatever he's talking about, even if it's unilateral, it would have any kind of action or discussion of action like that would have an immediate impact on on the issues that we're having because it would cause the Mexican government to actually address the problem, which everyone, I think everyone understands they are not doing right now. There is no, there's no pressure on them to assist us. Occasionally you'll see when there's going to be a a diplomatic visit and maybe Mayorkas is going down there, Merrick Garland's going down there, a few other officials are going down there. A week before that, they'll extradite a trafficker to the U.S. that was wanted. And they can say, look, we, we're cooperating with you. This is great. The reality is the cooperation isn't there. And these discussions, not threats, these discussions of military action or designation of terrorist groups have a significant impact on the willingness of the Mexican government to cooperate with us. So that's a fascinating point you brought up. I, I've forgotten about that tweet until you mentioned it, yep. but I liked some of his mean tweets and that was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, and, it's, and, it, it's, it's, again, it comes back down to leadership and it comes back down to decisive behavior in the face of, you know, claims of bias and things like this, disregarding political correctness. Like, this is what I'm going to do because I'm the commander yep. in chief, or this is what I'm going to do because I'm chief of police, or this is what I'm going to do because I'm the sheriff. People react and people respect decisive statements. They respect resolve. They respect 
leadership. And we can disagree. You know, people can say why they hate this president or love that president, things like this. But when you look at back, and again, not just presidents, but when you look back at successful executives in law enforcement, whatever level they are, there are people who take a position, they take a stand, and they follow through with it. And whether you are a law-abiding citizen or you are a hardened criminal, people respect and listen to leadership. So I miss that right now. I think we are in a dearth of, leader, of leadership right now. And uh, hopefully we'll get back to some semblance of that in the future. Yeah, and I think that's a, a huge point. And hey, I've had many friends who I'm close with who have worked for DEA in the United States Embassy in Mexico City. They've worked in Guadalajara. They've worked in TJ and the border cities. Here is what they've told me. As recently as this past year, they've told me exactly what you just said, Mark, which is the Mexican government does not respect weakness. They respect strength. They had more respect for someone who said, maybe we should designate these people foreign terrorists than they have for an organization who tries to appease them. If, if, if our administration, if the administration tries to appease the, the Mexican government, they will run all over us, completely discount us, and we will get nothing done. Part of the problem that we have sometimes in Mexico, and I'm not saying it's the case right now, I don't really know the U.S. ambassador there now, but you and I talked about this, I don't know, a couple episodes back, I think, or maybe it was just a discussion you or I were having, quote, off the air. Who are we selecting to be our ambassadors in overseas positions? Are these people leaders? Are they people who have been making decisions under fire and have true leadership qualities? Or are they political donors who, you know, are on the cocktail circuit and they've been appointed to be the ambassador in Mexico? Hey, that might be fine for some European countries. Go there, work the cocktail circuit. That's great. If you're going to be an ambassador to a country like Mexico, where we have significant challenges. You need to be, in my opinion, a former military officer with significant leadership experience who's not afraid to make the hard decisions and to say, hey, this is how it is. Tough luck. And I had a friend who was a major in the Marine Corps. At one point, he ran DEA operations in Mexico City. And that was the attitude he took, and he was extremely successful there with taking that attitude. Why? Because they respected him. They knew he was no nonsense. They knew that when he said something, he meant it, and it was going to be the way it was. And they worked with him, and they came to accept him and respect him. If we don't have that, you know, this gets into really a whole different discussion, Mark, about our State Department and are they our, are they our biggest weakness right now as, as a country? You know, a discussion for another time, but for sure, we need strong leadership at home and we need it in our uh, embassies overseas where, where we have challenges with, with foreign governments. Amen to that. You know, I yep. couldn't agree more. Yep. Okay. So finally, Mark, let, let me wrap it up. We've been going an hour. Just, I thought you'd get a kick out of this, where the term war on drugs actually came from. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so Nixon gave a speech back in 1971. And he said, I don't know exactly what he said, what the quote was. And actually, I don't even know what quote he was. I mean, I don't know what drug he was talking about. Could have been heroin, could have been marijuana, could have been quaaludes. 
But he said at that time, drugs are public enemy number one. And the next day, what did the newspaper say above the fold, top story, Nixon declares war on drugs. Mm. So it was really it was really a term that the media came up with and has run with ever since. Hey, absolutely, government officials have since used that term. But really, there is no war on drugs. I would argue that there's never been a war on drugs. Just like at the highway patrol, Mark, I would argue that there's not a war on speeding and there's never been a war on speeding. There's a war on drug harm, and there's a war on traffic safety. And, hey, arresting people to reduce the harm is uh, one of the tacks that we take to do it. Don't, make it the, don't, don't put the responsibility to reduce drug usage on law enforcement. Yes, put the responsibility to reduce harm on them, but don't put the responsibility to reduce drug usage on them. That's a much bigger issue that goes to, like you, I think you, I like the way you said it, cultural issues, changes that maybe we need to see in culture. Hey, law enforcement can contribute to that. I think they've tried to contribute to that, but don't make it their responsibility to change it. Look at them for what they are, enforcing the laws, trying to reduce harm in the community. The, the logo of, isn't the logo of LAPD protect and serve? It is. Protect means what, Mark? It means protect people from harm, whether it's physical harm, mm -hmm. psychological harm, financial harm. And I would argue that all those involved in drug law enforcement are doing that every day. Uh, anything to close out, Mark, on this? Any wise No, I think it's a me? great topic, and, it, and it's one that it has branches and legs and arms. Yeah. I want to say it into so many other topics. It's such a big topic. It has so many implications. But no, I think it's, it, it was a really good article to discuss Bill, you and I are on the same page on, on this one as we usually are. Mm -hmm. And, but it's, it's so, so important. So I don't have anything else to add. Just the, the fact that I love being here with you. It's so much yep. fun. It makes me think I learn from you. And I certainly hope that the same is true for those people 100%. who are listening to us and watching us. I, I learned a lot from you, Mark. Thanks for, thanks for joining me today on this topic. Super important. Support your local law enforcement. The scientific, let, let me, what's the best way to say this, Mark? One of the most scientifically backed harm reduction strategies currently in use by the federal government and state and local governments, law enforcement. Support your local law enforcement. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Bill.